Yo, yo, what's up? Episode 15 of the Gaming Memories Podcast. I, Kate Call, your host, a.k.a. Roboclip, the blessed beat maker. You guys know the story. Miyamoto the Father, Kojima the Son, and Carmack the Holy Ghost appeared to me in prophetic vision and commanded me to create the one true gaming podcast in which I simply interview creative and interesting people about their favorite gaming memories growing up. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a little bit of a different guest. We have Patrick Hickey Jr. He's a English professor at Kingsborough Community College, the writer behind the book series The Minds Behind the Games, in which he interviews developers of classic, retro, cult classic games, and even some modern games about how those games came to be and gets like the real inside scoop behind a lot of the most famous games in gaming history. And he's also a voice actor for a bunch of indie games. One of the games that I ran across that's actually really dope is called The Padre. Think of it as like Minecraft sort of pixel block graphics mixed with a uh, survival horror games like the old Alone in the Dark series on the PC, kind of like point-and-click adventure survival horror with a dash of Bastion. And what I mean by a dash of Bastion is in Bastion, there is a constant narrator that sort of narrates the game as you go along. And it was the first game that I remember having that sort of mechanic, and it was super badass. This game has a similar mechanic, and Patrick is the voice of the narrator. It's uh, super badass. I will put links to the book series, The Minds, Minds behind the games and all the applicable places where you can buy them uh, in the podcast description. I will also put links to the games and Patrick's info, his bio, and all that shit. You can check him out. Get more Patrick. His uh, I actually ordered his book from his website. It's dope. Um, I think it'd be a great podcast as well, and you'll hear me uh, essentially try to convince him in uh, doing a podcast because I think a lot of these stories would do awesome in podcast format. Nonetheless, he's got some dope stories. Check his book out. Links in the description. And always remember to share the good news of the Gaming Memories Gospel because you will be blessed by the gaming gods themselves. I say these things in their name. Amen and enjoy the show, folks. All right, man, we are recording. Okay. So uh, welcome to the Gaming Memories Podcast. Uh, there will be intros to this, which I'll do later. But sure. um, I'll let you kind of, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, from what I can tell mm-hmm. by stalking you online, <laughs> you have already released a book, The Mind Behind the Games, correct? Yes, sir. Which is games in general. And you have like a series of subgenres coming up? or on Yeah, the, so yeah Absolutely. I have uh, the Minds Behind Adventure Games coming uh, at either at the end of this year or in January. Then I have um, the Minds Behind the Sports Games coming in the spring. And then I have the Minds Behind the Shooter Games coming in the fall. So, yeah, it's been a pretty wild ride the last uh, three years or so putting all these uh, interviews together. How, uh, I was going to ask give you my next question. When did your first book release and how long did it take you to write it? Um, the first book came out in April of 2018. It took me about um, six months to write it. Um, I was just kind of like this big bowl of energy. I just had this goal in mind, and I just th- this book totally would have taken somebody else, like you know, at least a year to write. But I was just I was writing six to eight hours a day. I was just this this man on a mission to uh, tell the stories forgotten in video game history. So that was kind of like my fuel 
for the entire process. Okay. Hey, what well, um it sounds like you're uh, like hitting the cord or rumbling the desk or something. Do you know what that might be? I got gotcha, you. Yeah. Hold on. One yeah. It's just it's like right in the middle of your awesome I write 6 hours a day. You were getting this like crazy noise and I got gotcha. you. It's going to take away from your story. Absolutely. Do you hear it now? Yeah, it's better now. Okay. Okay. So go. it sounds like I'm assuming I just actually should have asked you this before you came on the podcast because it's about mm-hmm. people's video game memories. But I assumed yeah. if you're writing a whole damn book about like forgotten gaming stories, you grew up gaming. Otherwise, oh. why why would you be doing this book? Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I attribute comic books and video games for the reason why I'm a college professor today. I mean, I was reading the text in Dragon Warrior and RBI Baseball and Spider-Man comics at a super, super young age to the point where my dad thought I was just memorizing, you know, the text, but I was actually reading it. So um, I, I just fell in love with video game narrative and, and video game design at a, at a super young age. And I mean, I haven't really sold any game that I've bought since I started working when I was a kid. So I have about 3000 games and um, oh, Jesus, where, yeah. do you, where do you fit? Are you, in, are you in New York city proper? Like yeah. Manhattan? I'm in, I'm in one of the five boroughs. Yeah. So, I'm so in how do you, how do you afford? I've got a, a 3000 video games. I've got a man cave. Um, it's, it's literally like a cave. So like in um, my uh, bedroom, there's like a, a wall that we broke down. That's kind of like, the side of the third floor of the house and um yeah it's like literally like a half a room that's like slanted and all of my games are in there and i can only stand up like in the front of the room but it's like i sit down in there and i i chill out and i got like an old school crt tv in there with my nes and my daughter's always in there hanging out with me so it's it's definitely like a like a man cave so damn so yeah your ball's deep your balls deep, bro. You're all oh, the way yeah. in. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, no, th- th- that's like the best way to say it. Because it's like yeah. when, I'm, when I'm at the end of the man cave, it's just like there's no way I'm standing up in there. You know, it's like some Tim Burton nonsense. You know, what, but um, I've always wondered because I see people on Instagram with these insane collections. Mm-hmm. There's just people out there that they've taken it to another level. Is that – do you view it as like an investment? Like it's going to be worth a lot? or is no. it- something no. you're just you're gonna take to your grave basically yeah basically well see the thing is too i joke around with my daughter all the time because before she was born my wife was like um are you ever gonna let like our, our kids in this room and I, <laughs> and I was basically like they have no reason to go into this room like there's there they have no reason to go into this room to touch any of this stuff you know and then um i used to go in there just to like kind of like hang out and clear my mind and stuff like that and uh my daughter one time saw me in there, and then after that, it was just – it was game over. She was just touching stuff, and then I was telling her stories, and uh, I have, like, Legos in there that I've done, like a Lego Batmobile, Lego Millennium Falcon, and stuff like that. And uh, she just fell in love with the room and, like, pop culture and stuff. So now she's in there, like, pretty much every day with me. I don't I don't look at it as an investment. I look at it as, at it as um pretty much every game that I've bought, I could tell you the story of – where I was at that point in my life when I bought it. And then um, I was just having a conversation with my daughter before, and I was just like, oh, see this game? 
daddy's friend Tony Barnes made this game, but his name's not on the credit because the people at EA are pieces of garbage. Da 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 da. Like all all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of stories like that. You know, like oh Don yeah. DeGlau Don De made this game, but this isn't the best game that he did. And she's two, so she's just like, okay, all right, you know. But um, how so? Before you started writing the book, did mm-hmm. you were you already? Because I can already tell you, like, you know, you know a lot more shit than I do. You've, like, researched a bunch. But a lot of people, like, I read just, I read about video games more than I play them. That's just mm-hmm. what being an adult is. Sure. And, uh, sure. But I know, like, a lot of these random stories that I've picked up through the years. And it's something like what you've done. I've thought about, like, well, I could do maybe some gaming memory episodes, like mini documentaries on sure. games that I'm really interested in. So. Did you already have the bug kind of like that, or was this out of the blue? You got hit by lightning. I'm going to write a book about. Well, so so what happened was I've been a journalist for about 15 years. Um, I'm a college professor. I teach journalism. I've taught journalism for about 13 years. Um, I was an editor at NBC. I covered two Olympics, a uh, couple of presidential elections. Um, at one time, I was the most read video game critic on examiner.com when they were around. So it's like I've been writing about video games for a long time. So when you combine writing about video games for a long time and then playing video games for twice as long. You just know a bunch of shit. I know a bunch of shit. And then the thing yeah. is, um, I, I used to really enjoy writing reviews. And then I just like now I, I really find them obsolete. Like I, I feel like they don't really serve a purpose like in the ecosystem. I feel like speaking to developers and finding out why they made the game the way that they did is so much more important than finding than saying that a game sucks or a game is great. So um I was just at a moment in my life my wife was 5 months pregnant and I was just I, I said to myself I want to do something really cool so this way when my daughter is born that like I don't have any regrets and I could just focus on being like the best parent possible. And um I went to my boss at the college that I was working at and my idea was Let's create a multimedia journalism pro, uh, class for this program. It's like desperately needed. And the guy just basically told me, no, basically, like, we're just going to ride the status quo and just keep doing what we're doing because it's fine and no one's asking questions. So I was I was kind of pissed off and I was just like, well, you know what? I'm going to write a book then. So he told me, he was like, all right, go write a book. Like, just kind of like dismissed me. And um, I remember that night I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to write a book. And she's like, well. Don't talk about it. Just do it. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's actually really good advice. Your wife's she's awesome. My, my wife's awesome. She's mega smart. She's the smartest person that I know, you know? And um, so I, I remember after that, I just, I went into my man cave and I was just like, I'm going to write a book. I so did know what you I'm start gonna... with like, okay, from all these years of writing, you probably already had an ammo bank of a bunch of stories you knew most, most people aren't going to be aware of just because there's too much information out there for the <laughs> average gamer to keep track of. But you've been covering it all these years. And is that what inspired you? Because th- was uh, I guess a better way to ask the question is, was there a specific story that you're like, that's so badass, I bet there's more of those, and I'm going to go do research and get more of these type of development stories? That's, is, there, is there one that was like, yeah, baby, this is the reason? There was like, there was like five or six because like that night, that first night, I ended up grabbing – like five or six games out of my man cave. It was like King's Bounty, um, Wonder Boy and Monsterland, Toe Jam and Earl, E.T., Yars Revenge. Oh, shit. You got – okay. I already tell you. Let's talk about Toe Jam and Earl. What do you – Sure. What, what can you give me? That game, this is, for me, is like legend status. <laughs> so ba- so basically that game was created because like Greg Johnson, like one of the – you know, and uh, Jeff uh, Forsor, they, they were hanging out 
in like the desert and they were just wasted and, <laughs> and, and they were listening to like you know yes reggae and shit and and they were smoking pot and hanging out and stuff like that and they swore that they saw an alien ship and then that that's basically how the story of toe jam and earl came like everyone always asks is back then like how did how did you guys create like two aliens crash landing on earth blah blah blah, blah. and that's exactly that's exactly how it happened wow. they were, just, were they listening to funk but yeah, they were listening to funk and jazz and stuff, and um, yeah, that makes so much sense now. And it just it just all it just all came together, you know, from there. And um, they mixed in the the randomized levels, and the rest is the rest is basically history. That's what I was. Uh, I tried to explain to people when we talk about that game. I'm like, procedurally generated stuff. Like, I as far as my memory, that's the first and really the only old game that I ever played that yeah. did that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That that was like one of the reasons why, like when I was putting the list of games together, I'm kind of like, it doesn't matter to me if the game is good or bad. And that's the reason why I had E.T. in there, because E.T. is such a crazy development story. I just wanted people to kind of get an inside look as to what these developers had to go through to make these games. So it's like one of the questions that I always ask these developers is, all right, so this is what they say about your game on Wikipedia. And we know that's complete bullshit. So tell me the real story, you know? So like with a game like Mutant League Football. Um, that's another great one. Dude, you're pulling up. Damn, keep going. I'm just going to let you talk. Do your that's thing. That's okay. Every, everybody's <laughs> always like, oh, Mutant League Football uses the same engine as Madden, as the original Madden. And um, if you go on Wikipedia, that's what it says. But when you ask Michael Menheim, the creator of Mutant League Football, he's like, no, we discussed like, you know, the engine and gameplay with Scott Orr, the guy that created the original Madden, but in no way, shape or form is it a copy and paste job from Madden. It's completely different dev team, completely different process. It just so happens they use the same um, camera view. So it's like right off the bat, that made me feel great because it's just like, now I'm going to completely squash this like popular myth that Mutant League football is just a reskin of Madden, which it's not. One of the biggest problems. Yeah, hey, uh, watch out for your court, but I just don't want your. Oh, okay. You're so entertaining. I just don't want it to be ruined by crazy yeah, sound. Yeah. Um, like one of my biggest problems when I first started writing this book was just like. Um, and now your uh, audio is like bad. Now Sorry, it's bad. Man. No, 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 no. It's okay. Is it bad now? It's like muffled. Did you move away or did you cover something? Hold on one second. Let's see. You know what? Let me change headphones really quick. Maybe that okay. might fix the problem. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. Sorry, fellow listeners. I'm just looking out for you. He's so damn entertaining. I just don't want right in the middle of squashing a mutant league football, which you haven't played that game. A lot of you probably don't know what that game is. That's like before NFL Blitz, the arcade, when you have like NBA Jam, NFL Blitz, Wayne Gretzky's hockey on the 64, like those arcade. Way before that, there was a series of games that were similar in mutant league football. I'm sure it was on a bunch of systems, but I had it on the Genesis. And it was like arcade football where you played like aliens and mutants and you could like smash each other and there was blood and guts. It was badass. And, okay, uh, can you can you can you hear me now? Oh yeah, you sound amazing now. Sounds good. Okay. I'm sorry, I just ran into another room to to grab the headphones, so okay. I didn't hear anything that I you was were just saying, trying so. to explain what uh Sure. For those what for those listening that don't know what Mutant League football is, I was explaining mm-hmm. it. It's basically like imagine NFL Blitz, but the original and it, like arcade, crazy, over-the-top football. But on top of that, it's like a like a Guar concert. Everyone's aliens and mutants, and there's blood and there's guts. 
And you, uh, that's what I remember as a kid. I haven't played it in a long time. The, the thing that I love about Mutant League Football too is that um, you could win the game despite not scoring any points. You can actually kill, kill the enemy. The, yeah, yeah, you could kill everybody. Yeah, I, yeah. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. So um, that was one of the – so that Mutant League Football was kind of like the basis for every chapter when you think about it. It's just like take p- the popular opinion of the game, the things that everyone thinks about the game as true – and then speak to the developer and then just tell the real story because there's, oh, there's okay so it's like the it's not just stories but you're also basically comparing lore or myths about the industry to the truth absolutely yeah absolutely because there's so many streamers out there and there's so many um youtubers that will do like these little mini documentaries on games and um all they're doing is just reciting information from Wikipedia. Like they're not adding anything extra because they're not going. The hardest part for me when I'm doing this is to get in contact with the developer. Because if I had to just write the chapter by myself, I could probably do that. Yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah. But the thing is, like, if you read the book, most of the chapter is quotes from from it, it reads like a conversation between me and the developer, the developer and I. Sorry. English professor that can't speak English. Um, So it's like, it's not each chapter. Isn't me trying to showcase like what an amazing writer I am. Each chapter is, is myself giving the developer an opportunity to tell the development story. And then all I'm doing is in the beginning, setting the scene, like what is this game? Why is it worthy discussing? And then just bouncing transitions to make the conversation make the most sense. Okay. So that, the, the night you sort of have the idea and you look, you look at your games and there's mm-hmm. that Toe Jam and Earl, mm-hmm. was it – so did you already – like was that a rumor you already had in mind I want to figure out? We picked up the game Toe Jam and Earl. It's like I'm going to start digging down that hole. How did you start? Yeah, yeah that's what I did. I just uh, – so the five or six games that I had, I just started doing some research on and um, and then I reached out to the developer of, of each of those games. And what I said was if I could get three – out of the six original developers, then I would be able to have enough to pitch like a book to a publisher. And what ended up happening was like within two weeks, all six of them got back to me. And um, this was like Halloween 2016. So by Thanksgiving, I assigned the con. How, how hard was it to track down their emails? Um, it, it was surprisingly not nearly as hard as really? people would think. Oh, yeah. okay. So we're talking Moby Games, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. And then, then it's just the art of the pitch. Yeah. You know? So, like, I was able to just tell them, like, listen, I've been doing this for over a decade. But now, like, I don't want to write articles anymore. Like, I want to write a book. So help me tell your story. And, um, I mean, I've pitched. Now I'm finishing up, like, my fourth, my third and fourth books now. And um, I've pitched hundreds of developers, and I've probably interviewed for the book series probably like 130. So it's like I've only gotten a couple of no's. Everybody else either doesn't answer or we have to just work around their schedule. So, like, I've done interviews with developers at, like, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning in my kitchen not to wake up, like, my wife and my daughter and stuff like that. So it's just a matter of scheduling. And then once you have them on the phone – or in person, because I've done a lot of these in person too, you just have to make sure that you're on your game and you know your shit because these people are investing in you too. So if, if you throw in there like a stupid question and they get even like the sniff that you don't know what you're talking about, 
they're not going to open up to you and they're not going to tell you stories like the sports book that I'm, I'm just finishing up now. Like I, I have stories in there from EA about like the original John Madden football that when people read them, they're going to go what? And it's just like the only reason why I got them is because these people trusted me to tell their story. Is there a, like, do they, are they under an NDA? Do they have to stay anonymous if it's something well, like scandalous? Well, so, so see, this is the thing. So one of my big problems with video game journalism now, especially like places like Polygon and Kotaku, even though I love some of the stuff that they do, um, like a lot of the stuff that's been written about Blizzard and like Activision the past couple of months has used anonymous sources. And to me, if you can't get someone to speak on the record about something, Okay. The amount, the amount of credibility is not it's not there. So like in this book, there is not one anonymous source. I get all of these guys to tell these stories on the record. So That's good. Yeah, I I read Kotaku fairly often as like a like a aggregation of just in Reddit and I've seen yeah. some of the headlines but like the sort of that I don't know, drama or outrage at the video game world like I don't find entertaining, so I never read those articles. But I yeah. did see a bunch of Blizzard in like something about a, a kid in Hong Kong that got taken money away, they gave it back, or something along the lines of that. What's going like, on with that? One of the, one of the stories that I was referring to was um, they uh, they had written an article about how Blizzard employees are um, unhappy because they're, the crunch time for the games is so intense, and um, they don't have Kutaku time to spend. Hits on crunch time a lot. Yeah, actually. but it, yeah. it's it's a part of it's a part of the business. It's like I'm. I'm writing the story for uh, for a video game right now, and um, it's like I come home from work and I'm working on my books and I'm spending time with my family, and then it's just like eleven o'clock at night to like two o'clock in the morning. Man, I'm on a Google Hangout with the two other developers, and we're just working on the game. And it's listen, it's not fun, but when you finish a level or when you go to a con and people start playing your game, then that's where it's worth it. Like video video game development is not fun. It's it's a lot of hard work, and um, it's so easy for you know a publication to kind of like go, oh, we feel so bad for the game developers and stuff like that. But these guys, they do this because they love to create. So I feel like when I first started writing the books, I was on the outside looking in, and then after the first book uh, came out, I got opportunities to do some story editing and some voice acting, and uh, now now writing and some design. So it's just like now I've seen it from from both points of view. And uh, if you're going to write a story about stuff like that, you've got to get people to speak on the record because otherwise it's just, you're just making the industry look bad. It's like any, any developer like worth their weight in gold would just be like, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I feel that everyone else is just, they're just looking to get, they're looking to get traffic. And yeah, they're looking. Yeah. I get, they want some attention. My, mm -hmm. I guess my question would be, I understand that it's part, and like uh, game developers do do their th they do their thing with so much love and passion. They do it because they sure. love it. Um, mm -hmm. I know from a lot of friends that do development. I ask them like, "Well, you're a genius. Want to make a badass game or work for a game?" And like, "Ah, oh, there's no money. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's it's like a lot of work for way less money. And I'd rather just go work for some tech company, and make a bunch of money, and come home and do what I want with my free time. I'm like, okay, I get it. So these guys these guys love it, but. I guess when you're researching the stories you're going to probably talk about, do you think that big game developers take advantage of the fact that people are so passionate about it and they'll put up with a lot of shit? Oh, absolutely. You know what it reminds me the most of? Because it's like another world that I'm like pretty 
tight with uh, professional wrestling. Um, Ooh, all right, let's go wrestler, there. <laughs> wrestler, wrestlers, like I know wrestlers that um, will work a 20-minute match and get their ass literally handed to them for 25 bucks. And they just do it because when their music hits and people cheer their names and people throw stream, uh, streamers at them, they just they just light up and their whole world changes for that little amount of time. It's, I mean, it's one of the reasons why people were leaving EA in the early 90s to go and do dev for, for EA because they wanted the royalty. So, like, if you work for EA and you produced, like, let's just say Madden, you had stock options and they paid you and stuff like that, but you didn't get a royalty per cart that you sold if you made the game then you got whatever they paid you and then you got a royalty per cart like what and what do they define as dev is it everyone that worked on the game in any capacity it's the people that they contracted to work on the game so like let's just say um and this is the thing that these are a lot of things that that people don't understand 1099 guys yeah so it's, it's it's like whoever developed the game whoever made the game is one company most of the time, and then the company that published it is oh, a okay. Yeah, you know, so, so this like non, like a non. This, I guess you could say non first part. Like anyone, any studio they contract to make a game, mm-hmm. it's better to work for that studio because you get royalties versus actually working for EA doing the mm-hmm. publishing side. Okay, I follow. Yeah. yeah, so it's just like um, a lot of these guys didn't make nearly as much money as you would expect. So it's just not like perfect example mutant league football that guy michael menheim was like living in a hotel while he was designing the game you know um michael pasain who did uh desert strike and jungle strike for this uh, for the soviet sega genesis strike. and so soviet yeah. strike and all those games like um he was basically like living on his advances so if the game didn't sell he was screwed so luckily it did you know so how many of that, those older like the Soviet, is it really one main guy or did, how? No, no. What's so the that's, support staff they have? So that's the thing. Like um, from what I've been told, um, so like Mike Pesain came up with the original idea for Desert Strike, like the helicopter flying around. and Yeah. Uh, but EA had an entire team that like brought that design to life. And I'm just going to tell you this, that like some of those people that brought that design to life never got the credit for actually doing that. And they actually played just as big a part as like Mike, Mike Pussain did. So huh. it gets, it gets really, it gets really tricky. I can't you know? say that. I can't say that really surprises me actually, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's I, anytime you combine people who are like, it's just, it's such a labor of love. It, you, they just shady stuff happens because oh yeah, that's just the way. I don't know. It's just the way, way we are, I guess. I want to ask you about to, to segue to something more modern because I don't, I wonder what your thoughts are. Uh, the Hideo Kojima and Konami breakup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I people here already know what I'm talking about. Just give me your like thoughts on that. Well, see, my whole thing is it's just like um, if you play Fortnite, for example. And you're on like a team in Fortnite in a clan. When you start out, you may have a certain ability or, or a certain rank. And then as time goes on, you may outgrow that clan. And you may have to go out and find a different clan. Or you may get so good that you're like Rambo and you don't need a clan. You could just run, you know, your own your own business, your own way. Yeah. So that's 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 Kojima. You know? Can think about it this way. 
Name five great games that Konami has done in the past 10 years without Kojima. Well, that's actually a really good question. Whew. It's hard. It's hard. It's definitely not the last Contra. You know? Let's see. So, you said last 10 years? Yeah, in the last 10 years. Ooh, I don't think there's one in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, not in the last so, 10 years. So do you blame? Do you blame Kojima for leaving? No, I don't blame him at all. I guess what I was – I should have prefaced my question a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I watched – I watched like a like – speaking of YouTube – videos that are probably bullshit but they're just so entertaining <laughs> <laughs> is uh, a guy was talking about he doesn't think pt i don't he doesn't think kojima ever actually truly intended pt to be mm-hmm. a playable teaser for silent hills because he already knew the konami thing was going to go down and they were breaking down a bunch of clues and interpretation and then they were going through the timeline of, of like what happened and tweets and like they mm-hmm. put together this very compelling argument that like pt was basically like him priming the pump like it was almost like okay but or is this just people doing kojima worship like you know how it's, it's, i mean it's definitely possible you know <laughs> yeah but the whole thing is though too like uh i i think kojima realized that people were gonna play his game not because of the konami label on it but because he was attached to it you know yeah so I think that was like the biggest thing. Sometimes, I mean, we go through those moments. Like I remember when I was a little kid, like um, I used to watch the Yankees all the time and I loved Don Mattingly and Don Mattingly was like the guy. And then all of a sudden the Yankees drafted like Mariana Rivera and Derek Jeter and stuff. And all of a sudden it's like Don Mattingly is not the guy anymore. Now all of a sudden it's Derek Jeter. So it's like when – Kojima was first getting started in Konami. There was a ton of other talented developers there. But by the time he left, I mean, there's not many. I mean, Konami's like only like um, franchise that they really pump out like every year now is like Pro Evolution Soccer. Yeah. You know? That's true. What and, is left? Nothing. Nothing. You know, well, the thing is now, now they have the NEC um, brand. So like that TurboGrafx-16 Mini that's coming out, that's going to be a Konami uh, production. Um, so they're going to make some money off of that, but as far as like development goes, and I mean, this has gone on for a really long time. It's like, I, I was very close to getting, um, the development team that did the, the second Contra game on the PS on the, on the PlayStation, the Contra adventure. I, I played that. Yeah. PS one was my, like, was my, uh, glory years. So I played, mm-hmm. yeah, that game was awesome. But the thing is. That, that game wasn't even developed by Konami. It was developed by another company, and Konami just published it. So it's just like, after, like, the Super Nintendo, Konami's track record hasn't been nearly as good. Like, they, of course, they had Metal Gear Solid, and they had a couple of other, like... They had Silent, Silent Hill. And yeah. Silent Hill. Yeah. But, but, I mean, take away Silent Hill and Metal Gear, and all of a sudden, it gets really thin. Yeah. Well, that's so, all I could think of. Did Metal Gear survive ever? Did that actually come out? Did what? Metal Gear Survive. It was like the like the zombie Metal Gear game that came out after the Phantom Pain. It's like a it's like a multiplayer reskin. I don't know if it's out or got canceled. Yeah, I don't know if it's out either. Wow, that's Metal a good question. Metal Gear Survive review. I guess maybe it is out. Six point five out of ten on IGN. So yeah, it came out. I guess. Wow. But no yeah. one knows about it because it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> oh man. That's crazy. Alright, so uh, so the games you picked up that night were those mm-hmm. games. I guess I would say 
You, how old are you, by the way, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 36. 36. So you're actually uh, basically a year, year older than me. What is the first um, video game you remember ever playing? Um, probably Super Mario Brothers. But like um, the first game that I actively remember like enjoying playing was uh, probably either Dragon Warrior or um, RBI Baseball on the NES. I played RBI. Dragon Warrior would have been... You must be uh, like genius. That was, that's a pretty heady game for the age. I used to just watch my dad play it, and I would just like memorize the things that he would do. And like I was reading oh, by the time I was, okay. I was reading by the time I was like three and a half. So it was pretty wild. Like um, like I said, I learned to read at a very very young age, and um, yeah, Wonder Boy and Monster Land, and like um, a lot of those first person Sega Genesis RPGs. Like Shining in the Darkness yes. and Fantasy Star, Fantasy and I, Star. I used to play all of them. So, and my yeah. dad was like, "There's no way this kid is reading it." And then I'm just like, "Yeah, yeah, I am." So, it's pretty wild, huh? Would you grow up in proper New York five boroughs area? My entire life, Brooklyn born, raised. Damn, yeah. OG status. OG status, like where all those mafia movies took place. Yep. Is that a is that, Hurst. is that the would, would you say that's the norm for your peers growing up most people stay or do most people leave yeah i would say like most people have stayed in like the five boroughs so that's the thing though too like the five boroughs of new york city are all completely different from one another so it's just like brooklyn bronx queens staten island new york city there it's like five completely different styles of living so um Sometimes when people get older, they move to Staten Island, which is more suburban, low-key. Then when people get a little bit, like, from their, like, early 20s to mid-20s, they try it out. They try living in New York City, you know, things like that. So it's just – it's kind of crazy when they say, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's, it's, it's the truth, and it's just kind of like if you live here, there's little enclaves. There's, like, a little Italy. There's, like, a little Russia. There's a little Japan. There's a little this, a little that. So you can kind of get a big sample of the world just by staying in New York City. I mean, I definitely have traveled a bit, but I've, I've learned a lot about people just by being in New York City. Dang. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, which one do you live in again? Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. I believe you're the one... Correct me if I'm wrong, but did you post mm-hmm. about Disruptor on Instagram recently? No, no. Oh, I swear it was you. Do you know that game? PS1 game? Yes. Yeah, the shooter. Mm-hmm. The shooter. I think I swear it was you. And it, you said, or well, whoever it was said it's the uh, first game from Insomniac. And I was no, like, no, no. Insomniac yeah. made that game? Yeah, no, I didn't post about Disruptor. Oh, well. Yeah, that's okay. What do you know about Disruptor? <laughs> that it's the first game made by insomniac oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not sure i'm not sure if it is i don't um, that's what i was gonna ask because like it really because i remember that throwing me for a loop it must have been somebody else um i know that the guy that i'm uh develop one of the guys that i'm developing uh Kroom with is a big fan of like a lot of obscure shooters pete Paquette. he was actually um a senior animator on Bioshock Infinite, and um, he's worked on movies like Rio and Ice Age and Horton Hears a Who, and he loves obscure games. So it could have been him because, okay. like, he posts about stuff like that all the time nice. too. So, all right. So the first book you you do it, and you said six months, right? Yeah, I did it in six months. It's thirty six games, so it's the stories behind thirty six games. And um, yeah, man, it was just like 
six to eight hours a day of just writing, researching, editing, playing. And, uh, yeah, I banged it out in six months. And how, it, uh, how many interviews so was, it, was there multiple guys per game? So it, you had it depends. So like perfect example, the night trap chapter. Um, oh, okay. That's, that's the best chapter in the book just because like so many people have shit on night trap over the years. And it's just like, um, night trap was originally supposed to come out in 1985. So if Night Trap comes out in 1985, it affects the video game industry in such a different way than it did when it came out yeah. in 1992 on the Sega CD. Um, so just getting like David Crane, um, Rob Fulop, all of these guys, there's probably like four or five sources for that. Um, we should probably preface for people who don't know what Night Trap is and understand yes. why it would be crazy for that game to come out in 85. The best way I would describe it, it was like the first game that have basically – Video sequences that was like yeah. on rails. It's almost like an early version of maybe what's that guy David Cage? He makes a bunch of story narrative quick time event games. Mm -hmm. uh, what's what's that one? Uh, Detroit Human Heavy Rain. Mm -hmm. But it was like that idea. Way this is my memory. Correct me if I'm wrong. Because I remember yeah. Night Trap being like, okay, they're taking like video sequences, and then you have yep. inputs. Then it's like yep. choose your own adventure. And Absolutely. I remember a bunch of. Like, like bad press. Like it was, there was like some sexual conduct or something. Well, because like, the thing is, it's like they have uh, these vampires, and what these vampires had was um, these electrified like hooks that they would use to like wrap around the necks of their victims. But like the hooks look like big black penises. <laughs> okay. Like, like big black, like big black dildo. So like, just imagine, like this thing getting wrapped around like some white girl's neck that that's like in the bathroom, you know? So like, um, uh, I, grew it was up, I grew up really hardcore Mormon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just remember my parents being like, you will never play that game. And something yeah. about sex. And it, it wasn't, was a big it, deal. it wasn't, it was like a B horror movie. Like these kids stuck inside of a house that's like being attacked by vampires. And then like this, this like task force is trying to save them at the same time. So it's like three narratives all pushed together. And the cool part, about that game was it was originally designed for a system yeah i was gonna um, say how would that have come out in 85 what could have so it was designed by a hasbro of all that this is why it wasn't like you know nc-17 sexually charged game because it was designed by hasbro um the name of the company um the name of the system was like the project nemo and it was a it was a video game system that ran on vhs tapes what so Yes. Um, what? I have yes. never heard of this. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened was they were getting ready to launch and Night Trap was one of the games, um, Ground Zero, Texas, Sewer Shark, all these games that eventually were released on the Sega CD. Um, but what happened was when they were pitching the system to like places like um, Toys R Us, Toys R Us was like, listen, this is way too expensive. People aren't going to buy it. So unless you make this system cheaper – we're not going to carry it. So Hasbro was like, you know, fuck you. We're not, we're not lowering our price. So then Toys R Us was like, well, we're not going to carry it. So then nobody carried it. So then the system just, it was never released. So now wow, all, Toys R Us had that much power. Absolutely. So now these games were never released. So now when the Sega CD comes to fruition, the guy that owned all of the rights to all of these games is like, now I can finally do something with these games. So seven years later, he released how, uh, it. How did they – what was like the – I guess the port process? Because if they were designed for a VHS-based system and Sega CD mm -hmm. is obviously not, 
did it require a bunch of development to get them to run on the Sega CD? Yeah, yeah, they had to. Uh, they basically had to port the games over. It wasn't like an easy, like one, two, three process. And the thing so that's spend funny, even more money, basically, yeah, to, be able to yeah, sell them, yeah. spend some more money. And uh, David Crane, the creator of uh, Pitfall, was actually one of the guys that like led the porting process. Like he handled a lot of the audio and the video conversion from VHS to CD. Um, that was an important game too, just because like a lot of people cut their teeth in the video game industry on that game. So like Mark Turmel, who uh, we know now for Smash TV and NBA Jam and NFL Blitz and stuff, he was like an intern on the set of Night Trap. You know, um, Rob Fulop, like the main desi- one of the main designers, he um, he he was the guy that ported Missile Command for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It was just like one of the greatest games in the Atari Twenty Six Hundred library. So everyone thinks of Night Trap as like this big steaming piece of crap, but it had some of the most talented people in the video game industry at the time mm-hmm. making it. So yeah. that was a really fun chapter to put together. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I never. I guess because I didn't play it. Mm-hmm. My view of it was it was I thought it was actually like a cult classic. It is. It it is. And the thing is, it's like banned in the UK, <laughs> and, and then uh, they didn't make nearly as many copies. And it yeah, so it, it's definitely like a cult classic. But then again, yeah, so because, when it came out, was it reviewed really bad and then became cult well, classic later? So the thing is, the reason why it became a cult classic is because like nobody could get their hands on it, ah. and be, you know. And the thing is, um, and, oh, it, and then it had all these legends. Yes. On, so yeah. Okay. While I was writing the chapter, like, because um, without Night Trap, Mortal Kombat, um, Doom, Primal Rage, those are all the games that like ushered in the uh, ESRB rating system. So I listened to like eight hours of Senate grand jury testimony about <laughs> it. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. That some of the fun. It it was not fun, <laughs> but it was just like, dude. Some of the quotes were just like, if you're if you're a, a loving parent, you won't buy your children Night Trap, you know. So it's like you have these senators that have like never played a video game in their entire life, just saying don't play Night Trap. So they like, so we'll put it this way: the reception was so bad to Night Trap that Rob Phillips' girlfriend left him because of it. Oh Jesus. So then what ended up happening was, so like I said, Rob Fulop is like one of the best designers of his era on the Atari 2600. So now he creates Night Trap and he kind of gets like blackballed a little bit. So now he's like, now he's known for the most like controversial game of all time. So he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and I'm going to create the cutest game of all time. So he creates this game called uh, Cats and Dogs. And it's basically like Nintendogs like 10 years before. What so like you, was it on? It was on PC. So what you could do is like you can you could raise animals and then you could trade animals with your friends and stuff like that. Um, Ubisoft ended up buying the license to the game, so it was re- later released on like DS and 3DS and stuff like that. But the games combined have sold over 40 million copies. Okay. So this guy is known for one of the most controversial games of all time. And he's known for probably the cutest game of all time. So he's got like a really interesting, uh, yeah, backstory. Wow, wow, that that's yeah. Your book's going to be dope, or your book probably I mean, it is dope, and then your new book is going to be <laughs> dope. Yeah, you should. Man, have you thought about like doing a podcast based around all this? I. I I actually like. I would love to do a podcast, but the thing is, it's just like um, you're fucking good at talking too. Thank you. you know well, I'm that, a teacher because right? I because I, yeah. I talk all day. You know, um, 
I, you know what it is? It's like the first thing I am is a writer. And I just feel like, I feel like people don't read enough. And um, like, I'll give you an example today. I was teaching a, um, an advanced composition class in the college that I work at. And, um, at the end of the class, one of my students, she was, she's older. She's like in her mid thirties and, um, English is like her third language. And she came up to me and she surprised the shit out of me. And like, she gave me a copy of my book and she's just like, you know, my son plays a lot of video games, but I would rather have him read about them. So I bought him your, your book. Could you sign it? And I'm like, how old is your son? And she's just like 12. So for me, that's like, that's what I'm touching at. Like, cause I have two nephews, one's 17 and one's 10. And they think they know everything about video games because of Wikipedia and like the angry video game nerd. And it's just like, there's so, <laughs> there's so much more information out there. And it's yeah. just like, so, and I love the angry video game nerd. I think he's hilarious. But the thing is, it's just like, it's so easy his, to spend uh, three, his, four minutes to shit on a game, you know? It is way easier. His his is like his channel is good because you're really buying into his personality. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's got a great personality, super yeah. charismatic. But it's just like I just like to go full on geek and then just have people like I've been, I've done podcasts before where they were like, um, yeah, we did an episode on NBA Jam and and Mutant League football and then we read your book and we just found out that like we had it totally wrong. Like we didn't know shit about or, those games. What I what people could do and maybe I'll do just blatantly create create YouTube episodes around chapters in your book. What are you going to do that, about it? That'd be fine. <laughs> Go ahead. It's like I listen, I'm from like the Gene Simmons like world of like PR. It's like there's no such thing as like bad yeah. publicity. You know, it's just like if you want to homage me or whatever, like if you want to parody me, you can do that because like at the end of the day, people are going to go back to the source. So, like, yeah. um, and I, I just think that you're you're so good at talking. I didn't I, I didn't know what to expect with this podcast, by the way. Sure, so, sure. Okay, this guy writes a book. I, like the book looks cool. I didn't know what to expect. You're really good at talking. You've just obviously done your research. I created this podcast basically because, like, well, there wasn't a podcast about gaming that I liked. It was just like sure. news, and I want to talk about more memories and cultural moments and like let it be a base and yeah and i have i have some guys that are artists and devs coming on like so you're you're basically if you made a podcast that would be i know i'm not the only one there's probably millions of people like me out there that would be it'd be like do you listen to hardcore history dan carlin by chance yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely you'd be like a video <laughs> game version of fucking hardcore history it would be, be awesome. as shit you know what it is too? It like it kind of aggravates the hell out of me because it's like there's there's podcasters out there that call them like you know the professor of gaming or like the gaming historian and stuff like that, and it's just like you don't interview developers. Yeah, I mean, like you know? I get it. I'm in marketing. I do like I collect traffic and market and sure, like I get mm -hmm. it. And like if I were to like want to make money as a if I was to solely not not to justify it, but at least mm -hmm. from a marketing perspective, it's like I want to make a channel. That's what I would do because you got to put out content. I would just do research on like what games have high search volume, the right competition. Absolutely. Where's, where's where there are gaps in content that yeah. would regurgitate shit in Wikipedia and try to make mm -hmm. it funny and blast yep. it out. Yeah. But – So it's like that's people, the thing. That, it's not as good as your shit though. Well, see, it's that's not the real. thing that I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because like I make a six-figure salary as a college professor. You know, So it's just like I'm writing these books – because like I love journalism, you love it, yeah, and I love video games and I love history and things like that. And I know because it's like I get, I mean, 
I can't just say between me and you because like my hope is that like this shit blows up and and people a lot of people listen to it but it's just like I get so much shit from people that I work with that are all like 20 25 years older than me that are just like why are you writing books about video games for nobody gives a shit and I'm just like no the people do they're just absolutely it's the highest grossing form of pop culture in the world and I know that like 30 years from now when I'm like 66 people are gonna go yo your book like matters I know like my book probably doesn't matter as much now as I'd like it to. But I know in 20, 30 years when a lot of the developers that I've interviewed start passing away and it's already started to happen. Like Alex, uh, Holoka who, uh, did music for towerful. He committed suicide a couple of weeks ago, you know? So it was just like, that was a guy that I interviewed, you know, for the book and he's, he's no longer with us, you know? So it's just like, that just makes the stories that I'm telling in these books that much more important. Yeah, that's, I mean, video games have gone from, at least in my life, in my lifetime, being, like, I got made fun of a lot. I played sports and shit as well, so it's like, sure. I deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Same here. But I got a lot of, like, crap, like, yeah, I wrestled, I just, there's a lot of shit, and now, like, the jock kids also like video games. And not Absolutely. only that, I, like, I run into cool kids that are younger, nephews, friends, I can tell you're the cool kid. Not only do you like Call of Duty and Fortnite and the big hits... But a lot of times they'll start spitting stuff out about like older games. I'm like, how do how mm-hmm. okay? Like video games are a different thing than they were when I was a kid. Absolutely. It's just like a lot of the games in my collection, I, I stopped calling games good or bad a really long time ago. Like I'll go into my local video game store and I'll just start picking out stuff and they're like, Well, why'd you pick that out? And I'm like, Well, do you know the guy that developed this game actually developed this and this was blah 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 and they'll be like, What? So it'll be like a three dollar game and I'll tell them like a fifty dollar story and they'll go, Wow, that's nuts. And for me, that's like one of the reasons why I game. So like let me ask you a question. I'm gonna turn the tables on you a little bit. So it's like if I ask you who wrote Romeo and Juliet, that's like a stupid question. Right, uh, like, probably whoever Shakespeare lifted it from. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but you know that it's Shakespeare. But like, yeah, if I if I go to you, like, who created um, who created the first John Madden football? No idea, definitely no idea. On that. And the thing is, it's just like we 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 participate in gaming related endeavors so much more than we read, watch movies, listen to music, and stuff. But we can remember the names of like one hit wonders and authors of like That's books. That's a really but, good point. Yeah. But not but not video game developers. So for me, it's like I wanted to write That's a book a that point. really focused on these developers and, and who they are and to say their name and people have people go, Oh yeah, you know, Tony Barnes did Strider on the PS three. You know, I want people to <gasps> yeah, be like, baby. you know, that's who that guy is. And oh oh yeah, and he also did um Buffy the Vampire Slayer and he also worked on Desert Strike, Jungle Strike, Urban Strike, Soviet Strike. You know, like that's what I want people to start doing because they don't do it now. It's like Kojima. If you mentioned uh Metal Gear Solid, they go, "Oh yeah, yeah, Kojima," but like he's done other stuff too. You know? But a lot of people don't remember the other stuff that he's done. Well, I was actually going to bring him up as a good example mm-hmm. of that's a very good point that we know games really well and games have become these pop culture icons, but we don't connect the games to the developers like we do musicians and bands or directors of yep. movies. Mm-hmm. But Kojima, for some reason, is one that's sort of broken into the mainstream. Yep. And like even – I was thinking about it like, OK, I'm way more nerdy. Like there's different – I'm not – I don't know near as much as you, but like compared to the people I associate with, I'm a freak. 
And I was mm-hmm. thinking about it like I could probably only name like maybe 20 developers if you gave me 20 <laughs> minutes. You know, yeah. and I'm like yeah. a, a nerd. That's a re- that's a really good point. Like I know yeah. the people behind like my true gems, yeah. but anything else, even if I'm aware of the game, I'm not going to be aware of anybody behind the game. And and it's not because you don't appreciate the work that they did. It's just because it's just weird. That's a good point. We don't. There's know. just not. Yeah, there's not an effort made by the companies, especially. Yeah. So to, to like let people know who these people are. So it, it's kind of become like my life's work in a way to really share who these people are and their journeys and things like that. So like some of the stories in the chapters are just like, I'll give you an example. Um, in the book that I have to have finished in like a week, the minds behind the sports games. Um, I interviewed the guy who was the programmer for RBI baseball, Peter Lipson. And, uh, some of the stories are just like, um, of him going to Japan for like the first time and watching Japanese baseball and having it be like so different from American baseball, because a lot of people don't know this, but RBI baseball is based off of a Japanese arcade baseball game. It's not an original game. Namco made it the same people that did like Pac-Man and stuff. So it was his job to take this Japanese baseball game and then and put in Ameri- over, American teams and American yeah. players and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just like kind of getting inside his frame of mind you know, and the thing is too, um, Atari was the company that um, published RBI Baseball, but they they published it through their Tengen brand, and um, a lot of people don't even know that Tengen was owned by Atari. You know, and a lot of people think that Atari just died after the video game industry crashed in 1983, but it's quite the opposite. They continued to make money in in the arcades and stuff like that, and they actually like used to joke around about it. They they. Uh, the people that didn't get laid off from Atari had a softball team and they called it the name of their team, the survivors, because they were the ones that survived the layoffs, you know? So like a lot of that stuff is in the book, like just getting into the mind frame of these guys that they didn't get fired when, when Atari went out of business, that Atari can continued to like publish, you know, and release games and, and like some of the greatest games ever, you know, like Paperboy, you know, um, Rampart, Cyber Bowl, like a lot of successful games, 720. So and some of these games are games that people have no idea about. But like perfect example, like 720. If you don't have 720, you don't get Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Yeah. 720, 720 was like the first sexy skateboarding game. You know? So when did just that stuff come like out? that. Because uh, 720? I'm pretty sure um, like 86, 85 or 86. So this is like right when Tony Hawk is like just starting to if you if you can like Google the arcade cabinet for 720, it's so freaking sexy. Like Atari was just so good at like designing arcade cabinets. So like 720 had a big boom box on, on top and they uh Rob Rowe, who was actually like the technical uh designer on 720, like he works at Pixar now. He's worked at Pixar for like 10 years. So it's like you had these super talented people. Don Traeger um, worked at Atari at the time. And then Don Traeger ended up becoming like one of the founding fathers of EA Sports. So it's just like. This mm -hmm. is why I'm confused. Yeah. Okay. So I remember 720. Mm -hmm. But I also remember Skate or Die. So Skate or Die is actually. 720 says Skate or Die. Yes. So this is what happens. Um, 720 is released. And then about four years later, Don Traeger leaves Atari to go to EA, to go to Electronic Arts. So because 720 was such like an important game for him, he was just like, you know what? 
I'm going to take some of the team from 720 and I'm going to bring in a couple of other guys and we're going to make another skateboarding game. And this one we're going to call Skate or Die. Uh, so it's kind of like the spiritual successor to 720. 720. Okay. Yeah. Because originally I was trying to think like – I think Skate or Die is older or yeah. maybe I was getting inflated. But then I pulled up a 720 screenshot. I'm like, oh, I remember this. But mm-hmm. then I'm like, oh, this screenshot says Skate or Die in it. Yeah, well, because that was like one of the famous catchphrases. Yeah, back then, and that's, you know? now that makes sense. That's how I. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, I would have never put that to. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, out of all the your first book, the thirty six games you said, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. How is it spread across like old school, or how? It's, I guess how recent does it go, and how it's, old is spre- it? it's spread across like everything. So, like I have like um, Towerfall in there, which is a PS four. You know, game, game and then yeah. an indie game. Um, and I have Pro Wrestling X, which is an amazing story. It's just this guy, you know, with no game development experience, just like kind of dropped like $250,000 of his own money to make like the spiritual successor to like WWF No Mercy. And the game's been in development what? for like 10 years. Um, I've never heard of this, but I looked it up. It looks like kind of like PS2's era. It's still in development to this yeah. day, it's on Steam right now. He's a great guy. He loves the industry. Um, But, like, so that game's, like, still actively in development. So there's there's Atari 2600 games in there. There's NES. There's Super Nintendo. There's Genesis. There's PlayStation. There's PlayStation 2. So, like, I have, like, the Incredible Hulk uh, Ultimate Destruction in there. Spider-Man 2. Um, There's all – the first book was just kind of like a – like an all-you-can-eat buffet, like a little bit of everything. And then what ended up happening was I wanted to do a sequel with more games. So, like, I was going to do a book with, like, 45 games in it. And my publisher is like, um, no. And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, you've got, like, a, a great list here, but you could break this up into, like, two or three different books. And I'm just like, I can't do three books with 43 games that's not enough so then they're like yeah we think that you could but what ended up happening was uh the adventure book that's coming out like at the end of the year that that has 31 games in it the sports book has 35 in it and the shooter book has like 38 so so yeah so i ended up turning like what would have been like a better sequel into three spin-offs that so now now there's basically between the four books there's like 115 games featured so it's pretty wild stuff yeah. On the, what games uh, are PS1 in your first book? Hold on. I'll, they can remember. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll pull up the list right now. It'll be super fast. Let's see the minds behind the games. Because that's, my, uh, that's my, my golden era for me. P- PS2 was like one of my favorites too. Let's see. Uh, I'm just looking for the table of contents. That would be nice, right? <laughs> um, here we go. Chapter list. So let's see. PS2, we got Max Payne. Uh, PS1, I meant. Oh, PS1. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Fighting Force. I remember that. Okay. That was like a arcade beat em up. Yeah. And yeah. the thing is, that was supposed to originally be a sequel to Streets of Rage. Streets of Rage. I remember actually that marketing. Because yes. I like Streets of Rage. I was a Genesis kid before that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of ESRB and my parents being Mormon, Streets of Rage, my memory is, I think the I looked this up once. Streets of Rage 1 and 2, the original box arts, didn't have an ESRB rating. And when mm-hmm. she, by the time Streets of Rage 3 came out, it did, and it was teen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my parents wouldn't let me rent it. And I was like, but 
you already let me play the first two games, and I was mm-hmm. thinking, I was thinking like, ah, it's going to work. I'm going to play it. No, they that's said no, great. and they actually took the other two games away retroactively. So, son, oh, that's so crazy. I've always hated the SRB since oh I was a young wee child. But Streets of Rage, um, I remember Fighting Force somewhere in the marketing because when you said that, I'm like, I remember being stoked that it was a new Streets of Rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. What else do you have on uh, PS? So the only the only other PS One game is uh, NHL Faceoff. Okay. Which is the original, like, you know, that's the first hockey game ever on uh, the Sony PlayStation. And that's a really crazy development story because EA really dropped the ball on NHL 96 on the PlayStation and they never released. So, like, by default, NHL Faceoff ended up becoming this huge seller because there was no, there was no NHL, other, NHL yeah. game from EA. And they ended up being, like, super dominant for, like, four or five years. So, um, if you want, I mean, I could rattle off the whole the whole chapter list for you is pretty interesting if you want for the NHL. No, no, no. For, uh, for the first book. Yeah. Go through the, go through the games. Yeah. Let's see. All right. So we, so we got mutant league football, um, Max Payne, uh, bully. Max Payne. Yeah. The the first Max Payne, uh, bully, um, wonder boy in Monsterland, um, ET, a boy in his blob, um, fighting force. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Um, oh, the Suffering, Night Trap, Toe Jam and Earl, Squids, To the Moon, Mushroom Eleven, Towerful, Hulk Ultimate Destruction, Spider-Man 2, Yars Revenge, Road Rash, Desert Strike, Bart vs. the Space Mutants, um, Gabriel Knight, Maniac Mansion, Voodoo Vince, Deus Ex, King's Bounty, Super Battle Tank, The Fireman, Pro Wrestling X, WWF WrestleMania The Arcade Game, Mortal Kombat, Doom, NHLPA 93, NHL Faceoff, NBA Jam, and then Wasteland. Damn. Okay, well, there's there's a lot more in there that I want to talk about than I expected. Yeah. You know, at the time. So <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, let me think. Well, see, that's the best part of the book, too, because is, it's, not, yeah. it's, not, it's not written, like, in a way where you have to read one chapter and not another. So I designed it in a way where... If you really want to, you could just read the chapters that you want. Yeah, I would end up reading them all. I, yeah, I mean, damn, there's so many. What was? Well, let's see. What time is it? Eight thirty-six. We start. So we've been about an hour. We got a little bit sure. of time. How much time do you have? I could I could talk for another twenty minutes or so. That works. Okay. Let's do. Okay, I I can't choose, so I'll let you make the final decision based on what you think is more interesting mm-hmm. between. Max Payne. Oh, this is hard. Between Max mm-hmm. Payne and Carmen Sandiego. Okay. So, oh, man, both of those are great stories. Um, but I'll go with Carmen Sandiego just in the fact that, like, the first, like, year or so that Carmen Sandiego was out um, didn't sell well. And um, one of the developers at Broderbound is like, why don't we pitch this to schools? Like, why don't I go oh. to schools and pitch this to schools? Because the way the game was originally designed was it was supposed to be kind of like a trivial pursuit kind of game, like for adults. Like, oh, how how well do you know, you know, your geography and blah, 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 blah. And it just, it was just marketed all wrong. And originally it wasn't supposed to be where in the world is Carmen San Diego. It's supposed to be like where in England is Carmen San Diego. And then what they did was they just scoped it out to make it like the entire world. Uh... So um, the game ended up selling like crazy once they um started marketing it to schools but then also too 
one of the crazy things with the game was that it came packed in with uh, an atlas came packed in with it because what happened was it was really easy to pirate software back then so they felt like if they packed in like a world atlas with the game that it would be a lot harder for people to make copies of like the 600 page atlas which is where all the answers to all of the questions were in the game Mm. so yeah it's a pretty wild story like how what what would make somebody think like yeah let's put a big ass book in with this game you know <laughs> i think the pitching i mean the pitching at the schools as i know is how i ended up coming across my, absolutely my eyes yeah mm-hmm. the school shit and then i got really into where in time is yep. in san diego and that one was uh that kept me entertained for hours absolutely. i love that game it's just funny though too because it's just like um, that's the way I got influenced to Carmen San Diego too. So it's just like one guy's idea to just bring this game to a completely different audience ended up making it as successful as it was. You know? Okay. So I want to ask one. I know you only have twenty minutes left, so sure. we're gonna I have a couple questions I want to ask about your video game memories, and then I want to ask. Well, let's first ask this. Mm-hmm. There's a, a really speaking of educational game. There's a really creepy game that I played in school growing up that no one knows. One listener chimed in and told me who it was because I was trying to remember it last episode. It's mm-hmm. called The Secret Island of Dr. Quandry. Have you ever heard of that? No, I have Damn not. Damn it. Well, I make an official request for, okay. for one of your re- most recent books. Because when you talked about Toe Jam and Earl mm-hmm. being like the result of them hanging out in the desert, getting high. Yeah. Like – some crazy shit was going on. Whoever came up with this game called the secret Island of Dr. Quandry. If you have, a, if you're on a computer, okay. look it up. If not, look it up later. It was it's like, so, this. go ahead. It's so funny that you mentioned that because a lot of the games that ended up getting in like my second, third and fourth books. Um, I have a Facebook page. It's like, you know, facebook.com forward slash the minds behind the games. And, um, while I'm working on a book, I'll tell people like, um, what's an adventure game that you'd like me to write about. And that's how I got croc in the oh, adventure book okay. and that's how i got zill oh yeah i saw book. you were posting like it was like a competition like so-and-so made the cut is that's from reader submissions yeah so well oh, okay that competition is basically like all the games that got in so now now i have a little competition to to find out like among the readers what's the best game in the book you know so it's like a little double elimination tournament it's just like a nice way to stay active on social media okay and it's a nice way for people to kind of chime in on what games they like and what games they don't like and things like that so but um yeah i will definitely look that game up and if it fits into like a category that i could write that i could throw it in a book i'll totally try and find the developer for you that would be awesome well i i just i meant it more as like my hunch is some crazy shit went on behind that game because that Mm -hmm. game is either was created by like a warlock who was worshiping the devil or oh somebody who was like on all the acid in the world. I loved the game and it enchanted me as a kid, but it yeah. also creeped me out. And, uh, and a lot of people I've tracked down that have played it as kids like, oh, yeah, that game was creepy. Anyway, I, I just recommend maybe there's something juicy there. Yeah, sure. I mean, Maybe. I love I love stories like that. It's like one of the reasons why, um, like, I'm working on the minds behind the shooter games now. And Chiller is a is Chiller. a game that I ended up finding the developer, and that's featured. It's like one of the most violent games of all time. It's called and, Chiller. Um, it's called Chiller. You should totally check it out. It's, Chiller FPS game. 
Yeah, it's a light gun shooter from like the the, the mid eighties. Oh my god, this looks insane. How you going? Yeah, and the thing is, the developers of this of this game were some of like the most talented computer technicians in the world at the time, and um, they were just in a bowl oh the wall fight. How, with the, how did this? There was no ESRB at the oh time. Oh my god. For those not listening, because I didn't know what it was, so to give people, yeah. it's like a, a Area Fifty One light gun, like arcade, point at the screen, shoot. Yeah. Except for it's like this first scene are people being tortured and like dead bodies cut in half, guillotines coming down. You're just like blowing up dead bodies into this rats eating. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. This next scene is like a river of blood in a dungeon, and people are being t- tortured. Even though it's like old school graphics, it's actually pretty insane that there's actually an un, an unlicensed port on the uh, NES as well. Oh my god! Yeah, this is insane. Yeah, hey, yeah. Okay, we'll end on that note. Give us a little <laughs> insight on Chiller. This is ins- yeah, yeah. So it's just like the the developers of that game. They were just in a situation where um, they wanted to push the envelope as much as possible. They were in a war with Atari for your quarters. You know, and um, they they were the guys that basically created the light gun genre. Like there would be no Area 51 lethal enforcers and all those games if it wasn't for those guys at Exidi. And then what happened was this happens a lot in the video game industry is people just bite off of each other's ideas and things get watered down and things like that. So the guys at Exidi were like, how do we create something that's like 100 percent original and different? And they just came up with this idea for Chiller. And um, they knew that it probably wasn't the best idea, and they weren't. <laughs> and, and it's like when I spoke to Vic Ptolemy, who was you know the the VP oh. of software design at Exidia at that time. He goes, none of us thought that this was like the greatest game in the world. He goes, this was just like a way for us to like put food on the table. This was like the way we thought we were going to be able to get to make more games. And then the game was out for a couple of weeks in arcades, and then. Um, arcade managers just decided to take it out because they were like kind of like policing themselves at the time because uh-huh. there was no ESRB but ironically um the game did really well in third world countries so like you know other countries that didn't have like the same moral and ethical stances as the United States the chiller did super well there um but at the same time, too, it was probably one of the last games that Exidi did. So, like, Exidi is known for games like Cheyenne and uh, Death Race and Crossbow. Crossbow is an amazing light gun shooter. Um, but for some reason, just Chiller is the one that most people think of uh, Exidi now because the game is so infamous. Damn. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> I honestly, I didn't know what to expect. The podcast has been awesome. You're really good at talking. If you Thanks, don't man. like turn some of this research and stories into a podcast formula, I guarantee somebody will. Sure. So, someone will, which is probably good for you either way. Cause it's a, uh, yeah. Where can, uh, so I know you're a mind behind the games on Instagram. Where can mm-hmm. people find your stuff or where's the best place for them to buy the book? So um, the Minds Behind the Games on Instagram is an account that I basically just created like three weeks ago. Um, I was actually speaking to like one of the developers like for that I've spoken to for the book. And he's like, you should make a separate account. He goes, because like your main account, which is Patrick Hickey Jr. It's just my name. He goes, you got pictures of your daughter and like music that you listen to. And he's like, it's cute and I love it. And he goes, but like if people just want the gaming stuff. He goes, you should probably do another account. So you can reach me at the Minds Behind the Games on Instagram. You can reach me at uh, Patrick Hickey Jr. on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter. 
on uh, Review Fix Pat because I'm the editor in chief of uh, ReviewFix.com. I own and operate that site, which is like all video games, indie comics, professional wrestling, all sorts of stuff. That's updated daily. Um, you can go there. The best place to buy the book, nice. the, the book is available on um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Indigo, like wherever fine books are sold online. But the best place to buy the book is on patrickhickeyjr.com. And the reason why the best place to buy it is mm-hmm. patrickhickeyjr.com is because what happens is when you buy the book from me, I get an email and um, obviously I get a shipping address. So what I do is it's completely different from every other video game author out there and probably a lot of other authors is I'll email you and I'll thank you and I'll be like, oh, by the way, you're from Colorado. Um, Are you a Rockies fan? Are you an Avalanche fan? Uh, Are you a Denver Nuggets fan or whatever? Or like, you know, just to start a conversation with them. And if they tell me, yes, I have just like this treasure trove of like baseball, basketball, hockey cards, all sorts of cool stuff. And I sneak it into your book. So like you'll get your book and I'll sign it and I'll personalize it for you and stuff like that. But like I'll throw some things in there that you'll be like, oh, shit, like I wasn't expecting this. So um, I had a guy from Canada. He's like way up in the mountains in like the Yukon Mountains or whatever um, buy a copy of the book like six weeks ago. And I'm like, what do I put in this guy's book? I'm like, I have no idea. So I was just looking through some baseball cards and I found, um, a Cecil Fielder, Toronto Blue Jays card. And I was just like, all right, this will work. We'll see. So then like a week later when he finally got the book, he was just like, bro, I used to talk about Cecil Fielder in like my cafeteria all the time. Oh my God. I can't believe you put that in my book. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like, I really want to have a relationship like with my readers. I want them to understand that like, um, I really that, enjoy, enjoy talking will, about this stuff, and that will work until you sell like a bajillion copies. Yeah, and that's then you're gonna, true. <laughs> yeah, so. well, see, the thing I've been really lucky so far that the book the book has done well. It's done it's done super well, but like um, digitally, digitally, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a lot cheaper digitally than it is print. So like most of my sales have been okay. digital. So how many but, um, how many do you think you could keep up? Because I think that's awesome, but I think your book's awesome. It's probably gonna end up selling a lot. The, like at some point, for, so basically for, what I'm saying is get it get it now before he's yeah. too famous to be for able to send you a baseball card. Can, I'll try. Yeah, for yeah. As, like I, I mean, I literally have like um. There's a there's an awesome antique shop near my house, and um, they sell like five packs of like you know random baseball basketball cards for like a buck from like 1989, 1990, and stuff. And I'm just constantly buying them just because of like I just love to like look at those old cards and read the stats on the back and stuff. So like I keep that stuff, and um, I basically have a drawer. That just has all that stuff. So whenever somebody buys the book, it's like usually every couple of days that somebody buys the book from the site. And then I'll I'll go get my packing slips and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll write something in the book and I'll, I'll throw something in there. So for as long as I could possibly do it, I'm going to do it. So it's like the same thing. Like whenever I go to a con and I meet readers and stuff like that, I'm just – I don't want to just sell them the book and then just send them on their way. Like I want to have a conversation with them. I want to find out what games they like. It's like, again – the game that you sold me, like when we get off, I'm going to totally research it. And if I could find a way to put it into a, a game, uh, into a book, I'll totally do that. Like, um, I have a picture of a reader in uh, the minds behind the adventure games because, like, he suggested this game Zill on. Uh, it was like That's a familiar Z Y Z Y L L Zill. So it's like this text, this text based adventure game and it's a great game and it's a great story. It was made by two guys and stuff like that. But I had no idea that it even exists until he told me. 
So then I ended up doing my research and interviewing the developers and stuff like that. And it turned out to be a great chapter in the book. So I told him, I was like, do me a favor. I'm like, you still have it? And he's like, yeah, I still own the game. I'm like, take a picture with it. We're going to put it in the book. And he was just like, really get out of here. So that's what we did. You know? So it's just like, I want, I want my readers to understand that like I do this just as much for them as I do to preserve like video game history, because without them, and without video game developers and stuff, there is no history. So it's like, I want to preserve all of that. I want to preserve the memories that we had playing these games. And I want to preserve the legacies of these developers. That's badass. And the good thing about that is, I mean, there's endless games that yeah. have a story to be told. That like You could do this your whole life. You'll never run yep. out. You'll never mm-hmm. run out of good stories. Absolutely. So that's just the hope. That's the hope that like the books continue to do well, that I can continue to do sequels. So I, like, I have at least three more books coming the minds behind the adventure games the minds behind the sports games those are both finished already and then uh, i'm working on the minds behind the shooter games as we speak and the minds behind the shooter games man like i really stepped it up for that so like i have like um, medal of honor gears of war metroid prime like i have like modern day classics wolfenstein 3d so it's just like each book that i do i end up getting better and better sources so like I'm, i'm really interested in continuing this journey as much as I possibly can. And in order for me to do that, I need, I need people to know about what I'm doing. So that's, that's basically the reason why I enlisted your services. So like you're looking for listeners, I'm looking for readers and we, we, we can all grow horizontally yeah. and help each other. Yeah. That's uh, did, I mean, my podcast is pretty new. I don't know how much I'm going to move the needle for you, but it's, no, it's okay. It's great. I mean, it was, I think, I mean, I've had good feedback with the podcast people um, Absolutely. so far really like it. I uh, did you ever talk? Cause I know you said Doom was in the first book, and then you obviously mm-hmm. had Wolfenstein 3D and shooters. Did you ever yeah. talk to Carmack? Well, see, this is the thing. So this the Doom chapter is actually on the the Nintendo Game Boy Advance version of Doom, and the reason why is because the development story is freaking amazing. So these guys developed Doom from like the ground up like a port of doom to be able to get it to run on the game to get it to work on the game boy advance and they were super proud of it and right before the game was about to be released carmack tells the developers well i just found the atari jaguar code for doom in like my basement um i want you to use that code instead so they had to totally re-engineer the game from scratch so if you talk to the developer at the time dave palmer he swears that his version of doom was better than the Atari Jaguar code that they ended up using. So it's pretty crazy. And then what ended up happening was um, ID didn't like, um, or id, whatever you want to call them, um, they didn't market Doom on Game Boy Advance, like, at all. So, like, it didn't sell very well. But it's probably, like, one of the best handheld, like, first-person shooters that you could ever play. Like, for me, like, next to, like, Dementium 2 is probably, like, one of the best mobile first-person shooters I've ever played. Another crazy part to that story is that um, when I originally re- reached out to David Palmer, and uh, who's worked in the video game industry for like 40 years, he agreed to do the interview, and then he just like kind of disappeared. And um, what ended up happening was he got diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. So now like two days before my manuscript is due, I have like 2,000 words left in my book like for max word count. And I was just sitting sitting up in my house, and I'm just like, I need to get Doom in this book. I need this guy to tell me the rest of this story. Like, this is a great story. People need to know about it. So I just emailed him, and I was like, Dave, I just need you to answer, like, four or five more questions. Sign the release, you know, 
so I can put you in the book. I want to put you in the book. So then he sent me the answers. He thanked me for his time, and I never spoke to him again. So I don't know if if Dave is doing well. I don't know if he's if he's upstairs, you know. So it's like just for him to in between yeah. chemo, in between chemo, to be able to like take the time out for me. Just made it like a really special chapter for me. But it's like if you play Doom on Game Boy Advance, um, it's an awesome game. And then if you listen, if you read that that chapter, and it's just like a lot of the times the people that were creating these mega franchise games for other consoles weren't the people that originally designed them. So like Carmack did like the original version, but then like the Apple two version was like, you know, uh, like Becky Burger. I think you know? that's what I was going to bring up a girl. So I didn't want to cut you off. There was a, yeah. there was, it seems like a, I ran across a semi legitimate doom mm-hmm. retrospective. I saw it on a YouTube channel. I'm sorry for who made this. I can't remember your channel name, mm-hmm. uh, but they did like a, a retrospective on all the doom ports. Yeah. And I want to say like that Game Boy Advance original Jaguar might have popped up, but I mm-hmm. them, I remember them talking about the, this girl, how she single-handedly handled one of the ports herself. Rebecca Heinemann. Yeah. Rebecca? Okay. Yeah, Rebecca Heinemann. Yep. Who uh yeah, so like but not only did she do Doom, she also did Wolfenstein 3D. So she was the one that kind of like she did the SNES that's what it was. Yes. Wolfenstein. Yeah. She did the SNES version of Doom. So like Carmack, yes. yeah. Carmack and Romero did like the original games, but then like the versions that most people have played, she did. You know, so she took all the things that like were so solid about Doom, and she just made it. She just made it a thousand times better, and she doesn't get any of the credit for that. Well, they, they at least in that episode they talked a lot about like uh, essentially what sounded like the coding Black Ninja magic. That mm-hmm. had to be invented to get that game to run on the limitations yep. Yep. of the SNES. Mm-hmm. She's a genius. She's super talented. So, and just just talking to her for the Wolfenstein 3D chapter for the shooter book was amazing. Like I, I love her. She's great. She's my friend on Facebook. She loves cats. She's like a super cool person. <laughs> so sweet man. Well, you have a lot to talk about. I'm sure we could have you come on again. Minds behind the games. Instagram. Buy it. What's Patrick? What's your last name again? Hickey, H-I-C-K-E-Y. Pat Patrick Hickey. If you buy it on his actual website, you're going to get some special love in there with you. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to last because <laughs> if it starts selling, he's not going to be able to do that. I can guarantee that. So get it, get it while it's hot. The upcoming games, adventure games, sports games, and shooter games. Do you have an estimated release time for those? So the adventure book is supposed to be out either in December or January. The sports book is supposed to be out in the spring of 2020. And then the shooter book should be out in the full end of 2020. Oh, and one more. Since we didn't really talk about your video game memories, which is sort of mm-hmm. the semi-premise. <laughs> of the, what is your – your? it doesn't have to be like your favorite game that you've played or the funnest game. Mm-hmm. But your most special video game memory. Oh, there's so many of them. Um, I know that's. I normally I would never say one. We'd have the there's whole a, there, yeah. There's a few. Um, I used to sell my PS1 memory card saves to people. So like, um, <laughs> yeah, like you would get like badass saves, and then people didn't want it to work. Yeah, and yeah, then, man. Like so, for, like, Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Like I, I had all the materia and stuff oh, like that. And they wanted it, but like what I used to do for like Madden and NHL. Um, for the SmackDown games on uh, PS1, I would create, like, the entire roster of, of characters that weren't there. Like, in the sports games, I would update the rosters myself. So, like, 
when like face off 98 would come out, nobody wanted to spend 50 bucks on face off 98. And if they knew me, I would just charge them 10 bucks and I would have the, the rosters completely updated in NHL face off 97. So they, they could basically play the new version of the game, uh. you know? So like, I used to just have so much fun just like doing stuff like that with games. Um, just hustling from day one. Yeah. Hustling from day one, man. And just, just really enjoying, enjoying games, you know, um, trying to break games, you know, like when I used to play fallout back in the day, just going all the way to the edge of the map to see what happens, you know, trying to kill NPCs in ways that like it wasn't supposed to happen. Just, just having fun, like with the narrative and, and, and the, and the stories and things like that. It's just, it's not about like winning or losing. It was just about investing time and just getting lost in, in the world that the developer was trying to create. That's, that's what always like stood out for me. How much would you charge for a final fantasy seven save with all the material? Oh, oh 10 bucks. That's it. How, that's how many it. hours would it take for you to get that? Oh, it's the same thing too. Like what I used to do in Pokemon, I used to do the same thing. Like I would just raise killer ass Pokemon and then, uh, I would sell them to people. And then, uh, they had the missing number glitch in Pokemon. Yeah, the and, uh, the like the the rare cat. You like swim so, to the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would do that, and I would get the Pokemon to level one hundred, and then I would do the box trick. So I would end up getting Pokemon <laughs> that had really strong stats, and I would sell them to people. Dude, I used to make like I used to make bank in high school. People would be like, "Yo, yo, yo!" Not even like. Do you know? Do you got any weed? It was like yo yo, <laughs> yo yo. You got a Charmander bro, level one, uh, a Charizard level one hundred, man, bro. <laughs> with fire blast and dig and da da da. I'm like yeah yeah yeah. I got you. I got you. I got so, you. Damn. So how did you? Uh, how did you make the process go quick on Final Fantasy Seven? Like Game Shark or some shit? No, no, man. Like I just, I would just grind through i remember like trying to beat all those weapons in yeah. final fantasy 7 like the underwater weapon and the desert and the ruby weapon i mean oh but talking. you could duplicate your save so you would just sell the oh, same yeah yeah, save. yeah 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 yeah, the re- yeah, yeah. i'm an idiot I was yeah so what i would yeah. do is like i would say give me give me your memory card and i would just duplicate the yeah 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 <laughs> damn so mm-hmm. that is smart as shit yep so that's hilarious that is uh definitely not what i was expecting the most I would say the award out of this is when this airs, it'll be episode like 15, I think. Out of mm-hmm. 15 episodes, the most unique video game memory thus far, the award goes to you plus 100 <laughs> internets, 100 experience points. Thank you. That's that is fucking hilarious. All right. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah, again, shout out. I'll put all the links to all that stuff in the pod- podcast description. Should go live in a few weeks. And then awesome. um, I'll, I'll try to send people your way with the book. That sounds freaking um yeah that's not what i was expecting man i think people <laughs> i think people should give it a look i remember looking at like the cover of the game and the idea and i'm like okay um i didn't expect those like i didn't expect you had me at toe jam and earl mm-hmm. as soon as you said the toe jam and earl story i'm like oh okay i yeah. see i see what's going down here yeah if you're into video games i i can already tell without reading the book you guys should go read the damn book Help him pay his bills. Help him get it out there. And uh, any other questions before you bounce? No, no. Just um, the whole thing is it's just like if you love video games, you'll love the book. Um, If you want to understand video games better, you'll appreciate the book. And the thing is if you just want to read stories about people fighting for – 
the accomplishments of their dreams, you'll enjoy the book. Like I've had family members and, and, uh, you know, friends of people that were into video games, read the book. And they were just like, you know, I really feel bad for that guy that made ET. He had to go through like a lot of shit. And I'm just like, "Mm mm-hmm. So I'm like, so if you took that out of that chapter, then like, that was like a mission accomplished, you know? So that's kind of like what I'm aiming for. So, and, and I'm a college professor and I've taught for over a decade, but it's not written in that highfalutin big word, big word style. It's written in a, in a way that like pretty much like if you're over like 12 years old, you can read it and appreciate it and understand it. So it's for everybody. It's for everybody. And, uh, December new ones coming out. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what's the Facebook page where people can suggest? So it's, it's facebook.com forward slash the minds behind the games. And we have a lot of fun on there. It's a lot of the readers, but like I'll pose questions like, oh, you know, what was the first game that made you cry? You know, who's who's the hottest like chicken video gaming and stuff like all stupid questions. We have a ton of fun on there. But then at the same time, too, like if somebody mentions a game that I'm not aware of, then I'm just like, OK. And that's how some of the games in the book came to be. So it's just like this really interactive space where a lot of gamers and there's the thing that's cool is you don't really know who you're speaking to so because i have a lot of developers that are on the page too and they'll be like oh this game sucks and then the developer will come on and be like excuse me like like, what sucks about the game you know so it's a lot of fun so it's like there's a lot of really influential and cool people that are on there that all share their thoughts about video games and it's it's non-discriminate non-discriminatory like everyone has a voice in there it's a lot of fun so i totally recommend people coming down and checking it out check it out do you have a discord by chance no i don't have a discord it's something that i'm thinking about actually so maybe one day for now facebook mind behind the games Mm -hmm. and uh Thanks for coming on, man. I'm going to hit the stop button. See you guys later. All righty, all righty. Thanks for listening to the entirety of the episode. You get extra faith brownie points from the gaming gods themselves. I tell you, they told me to tell you, you guys are on their good side. Uh, you know, Maybe some games aren't coming in the future. They're not going to be delayed. Uh, Cyberpunk, they told me, is going to be the motherfucking future. Uh, again, check out Patrick's shit online. Uh, I have all the applicable links in the right places. Thanks again for Patrick coming on. And next week, we have a super prolific, in my opinion, audio visual bass music producer, Levitate. He makes some <laughs> super dark, if you like Lorne, if you like Blade Runner, if you like, if you fucking like Blade Runner, you're gonna like Levitate. And he also makes super dope cinema 4d 3d visuals to accompany all of his music he's not just a producer he's a visual producer as well all around badass he's coming on next week until then spread the good news of the gaming memories gospel do your god-given duty you shall be blessed and be on the right path and uh your pills will go away all your dreams will come true and everything will be perfect see ya next time